Our first scripture reading this morning is from Psalm 119, verses 169 to 176. It can, it's in your program, but it can also be found on page 701 of the Old Testament. Let's listen for the word of God. Let my cry come before you, O Lord. Give me understanding according to your word. Let my supplication come before you. Deliver me according to your promise. My lips shall pour forth your praise. When you have taught me your statutes, my tongue shall sing of your word, for all your commandments are righteous. Let your hand reach out to me to help me, for I have chosen your commandments. I have longed for your salvation, O Lord, and your law is my delight. Let my soul live, and it shall praise you, and let your judgments be my help. I have gone astray like a sheep that is lost. Oh, seek your servant, for I do not forget your commandments. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our second reading from God's Word this morning uh, comes to us from the 18th chapter of Luke in this series of vignettes of uh, circumstances, encounters, and parables that uh, Luke sticks between sort of the proper, the body proper of Jesus' ministry, uh, itinerant ministry, traveling around Galilee and down through Judea, and then the great story at the end of the gospel, of course, like all the other gospels, of Jesus in Jerusalem leading up to the cross. This particular story only occurs in Luke, and um, like most uh, biblical passages, it takes a little while to, you know, they don't just present themselves uh, as understandable. You have to do some digging to make it worthwhile, and sometimes it's hard to figure out the context. But in this case, Luke gives us the context right at the beginning, and he's very clear about it. Jesus told them a parable about their need to pray always, and not to lose heart. And here comes the parable. Jesus said, In a certain city there was a judge who neither feared God nor had respect for people. In that city there was a widow who kept coming to him and saying, Grant me justice against my opponent. For a while the judge refused, but later he said to himself, Though I have no fear of God and no respect for anyone, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will grant her justice so that she may not wear me out by continually showing up in my courtroom. And then Jesus said, Listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God grant justice to his chosen ones who cry to him day and night? Will he delay long in helping them? I tell you, he will quickly grant justice to them. And yet when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me. May the meditations of our hearts together upon this, your word to us, your gift of yourself to us through Jesus Christ today, Lord, be acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. 
So Luke tells us why Jesus told the parable, but even before that, in chapter 17, um, Luke reports to us that one day the Pharisees, the religious leaders, asked Jesus when God's reign, God's kingdom, would come. And Jesus tells them that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, is right there among them and inside each one of them. And they didn't expect that answer. And then Jesus tells them and all the disciples who were there as well two more very strange things that they couldn't ha- could not have been expecting. First, Jesus says that for the reign of God to become real, for the kingdom to manifest itself in our lives, for the world to be a place where peace and justice and love and trust and self-giving prevail, his part, Jesus' part, He refers to himself using the old messianic phrase from the book of Daniel, son of man. The son of man's role would be to suffer and die in order to reconcile us all with the God who desires to be in relationship with us. And our part is not to suffer and die as Jesus must. Our part, according to Jesus here in Luke, if we want to be a part of the kingdom of God, we just have to keep searching for God in our lives. We have to keep searching and praying and trying, not well, necessarily, not with great talent, but without ceasing. In other words, as Jim Valvano said so famously, don't give up. Don't ever give up. The protagonist in the story, the parable Jesus tells this morning, is a widow, We don't know her age, but it doesn't really matter. Whatever her age, in that society, a woman who was no longer attached to and therefore given value by her relationship with a man, her husband or a son, uh, was in trouble. Uh, Not only did did she have no more resources, she also lost her standing in the community and uh, her prospects were dim. People did not give her uh, much attention, much pause, much value, and yet this widow, who is on now the margins of society and living hand to mouth, keeps showing up in front of this corrupt judge who doesn't care about God or any human being. Over and over, court date after court date, there she is. She's one of those people, this woman, who writes letters and emails. She demands to be heard. She will not be silent even when no one is listening. She presses for justice. I love that word, presses, this woman. This woman that nobody wants to listen to. Nobody even sees, perhaps. She presses for justice. Uh, I know it's hard to tell, but I used to play basketball, and I remember one time we traveled from my, my high school in Spokane, Washington, down to Richland, Washington, the famous Tri-Cities. Anybody ever heard of the Tri-Cities? Hanford Nuclear Reservation? Huh? The, it's not there anymore in these more correct times, but back in those days, their football team had a mushroom cloud on the side of the helmet. And they were scary for lots of reasons. They tended to glow in the dark. It was weird. In basketball, when they always killed us, so it was always fun, an eight-hour bus ride to be killed, uh, they would, they would score points, and then they would run back, they would turn around, and they would slam the floor. 
and they would yell some sort of guttural yell, and then they would full court press us. And I'm like, I just want to go home. <laughs> I don't like basketball. And uh, that's what this woman does. She gives a full court press on this judge. She presses and presses and presses. The wrong done to her, the injustice she's protesting, is not specified, but she keeps after this judge. She presses him for a fair decision. Grant me justice, she begs repeatedly. And remember, she's up against a whole societal uh, obstacle and wall in this attempt of hers. But then the person who wronged her, of course, is another opponent, an adversary, and most important, the judge is a lousy, corrupt judge who isn't interested in justice or her issues or even God's perspective. The late preacher and biblical commentator Fred Craddock used to say that in the last quarter of the first century when this gospel was written, widows were, as he said, an image of helplessness in the entire culture who were easily victimized by the powerful. This woman has no chance, not one. The judge is a judge. He has the authority, the authority of society, the authority of the law, the authority of their religious point of view, the biblical scriptures. And on top of all of that, this judge just doesn't care. She has no shot at getting this case to work out like she'd like it. And yet, because she won't give up, he eventually gives in. She keeps making a scene, and that's all it takes. When I was younger, the, thing, the last thing you would want to do in a religious uh, community let alone, is talk about or celebrate or certainly do anything that made a scene. In fact, when I remember growing up, um, conflict avoidance was probably one of the major parts of the gospel that was given to me. Your religion, your religious life, I gathered, as I sat in the pews there, wherever we happened to live, was to be a good, well-behaved boy, in my case. That was it. Oh, and to be a good anti-communist. That was the other thing. And, and somehow that was mixed up with Christian faith. I never saw any of that when I started reading the Bible myself, though. Um, but most of us who were raised in a certain kind of cultural world and expectation about church have this sort of idea that that kind of thing is not supposed to happen in, with religious people. We're not supposed to get mad or angry or cause a scene or a disturbance. It reminds me of a story I heard about a father whose son has the same name that my son, our son has, Will, short for William. Uh, have I mentioned anybody that my father and his father and his father and his father and his father, they're all Williams. And I'm not a William and I I'm still mad about that. But anyway, um, this father and his son, Will, uh, went out one day. The father forced his kid, you know, as we do as parents, to go to a Civil War reenactment. The boy didn't want to go, uh, and the father was so excited about teaching his son some history of our country that he forgot that his son, Will, was sensitive to loud noises and the booming cannons and the rifles that these guys with pot, pot bellies were running around shooting scared him to death. Um, and at a certain point, uh, the dad had to sit his son Will down and calm him down and assure him, son, all, the, all these weapons are fake. This is all fake. It's not real. And it looked like everything was going to be okay. The boy was going to calm down until one of the generals 
raised his sword and shouted, Fire at will! We all try to run away from loud noises. Have you ever been in a conflict at CVS or on the subway, and as soon as a person starts making a noise and standing up for themselves, we all, got, we all kind of look at our shoes and get on our phones and we try to get away from it. Debate, disagreement, and conflict are not what's supposed to happen in life and church, and yet here Jesus is telling us, be persistent, be loud, don't give up. Be a New Yorker about it, or a New Jersey-er about it. This story today is a story Jesus tells about how we should live, to know him, to be in his presence, to experience the love that he wants to offer to us. He says the key is persistence and being willing, if necessary, to make a scene. Because it's not show friends, it's show business. This matters. This relationship with God, this kingdom or realm of God that we are offered as individuals and as a human race. We have to be willing to struggle if and when it's necessary. Because this is a matter of abundant life and death. Sure enough, the judge, as we said, gives in. He says, uh, the, the English translation of the Greek here in our new Revised Standard Version is, I'm going to grant her just l- lest she wear me out. Otherwise, she's, this woman's wearing me out. But literally, in the Greek, it, it's a boxing phrase. This woman, I, I've got to give her, I've got to get her out of here lest she ends up punching me in the face. She intimidates him with her persistence, with her dogged belief in the justice of her cause. And the quickest way to remove her from his courtroom and get on with her and his life is to give her what she wants. And, of course, that's what he does. And Jesus says that's how we have to be, like this widow, with no hope, with no end in sight, no light at the end of the tunnel. But don't give up. Don't give up. And why? Well, William McGill, as the quote at the beginning of your bulletin this morning, tells us, once said that the value of persistent prayer is not that God is going to hear us, but that we will finally hear God. Because praying and trusting in these promises of God is a tremendous act of trust and expectation that even if we can't see how or when, somehow we're going to be transformed simply by opening our hearts and minds to the presence of God in whatever situation we're dealing with. Jesus knew we would be tempted to give up, especially if we can't control the outcome or predict the outcome or understand what's going on completely. But remember what the letter to the Hebrews says in the New Testament. Faith is the assurance, the assurance of things we're hoping for, the conviction of things not seen. We trust even when there's no evidence. Fred Beekner, also recently deceased, said years ago that persistence is the key, not because you have to beat a path to God's door before God will open the door, but because until you beat that path, maybe there's no way of getting to your door. Our part is to keep it up, keep at it, no matter what, so that God can get to us, so that we'll be ready. 
never underestimate the power of your persistence. Not your virtue, not your faith, not your intellect, your persistence, your willingness to love God back because you've been loved first. There's a story that Charles Hofacher tells about a holy man praying at the riverbank, and when the man finished his prayer, this little girl approached him and asked, will you teach me to pray? The holy man studied the little girl's face and agreed to her request. He took her into the river with him, kind of up to the waist, and then the holy man instructed the girl to lean over so her face was very close to the water, and the girl did it as she was told. And then the holy man pushed her head under the water. And soon the girl began struggling to free herself because she was concerned she wasn't going to be able to breathe. And once he let her up and she got her breath back, she gasped, what did you do that for? And the holy man I just said, I just gave you your first lesson. What do you mean, asked the astonished and kind of irritated girl. And he answered, when you long to pray as much as you long to breathe, then I will be able to teach you how to pray. All of us long to pray, but so many of us, we, so many of us wait until we're ready or we're equipped or we're trained. We think we're not you know, good enough at that kind of thing, and that's not what God asks of us. All God asks of us is stick-to-itiveness, this desire to hold on tight and never let go. And if we let go, to grab back on again. If we persist in our prayer, we'll begin to realize that our prayer is not going to change God at all, but it just might change us. And then, in that transformation, we start to experience the fullness of life that eludes us so much, but for which we all long so much. Fred Craddock told a story about visiting a hospital in a mountain community in North Georgia, where he was from. And as he was there at the hospital making his rounds, checking you know, the little lists of maybe there was a Baptist, he's, Fred Craddock was a Baptist, uh, maybe there was a Baptist uh, you know, in room 301 or room 506 or whatever, um, he came across a woman he'd never met. She was standing in a hospital corridor, and her head was sort of leaning against a door, and her fists were banging on that door, and she was shouting at the door, let me in, let me in, and... Fred Craddock, this pastor, kind of low-key, calm guy, couldn't imagine what was going on. And he said, ma'am, can I help you? He tried the door that she was banging on, but it was locked. It was the chapel door. Strange that the chapel door would be locked, but eventually Craddock found a supervisor with a key, and that person let them in. The woman who had been banging on that door, screaming, let me in, let me in, was shabbily dressed, and her hair was uncombed. She didn't have any makeup on. She had the look of desperation, which I imagined that widow had after coming in front of that judge 10, 20, 30, 50 times. The woman had banging on the door there in that hospital had a voice of desperation. She was screaming and crying in desperation. And she kept saying, I know he's going to die. I know he's going to die. And Craddock asked her, what happened? And she told him that he had a heart attack. And Craddock said, well, can I pray for you? She said yes. He started to pray, and then she interrupted the prayer. She even took over the prayer. Craddock said, maybe I was praying too slowly or too softly or too religiously because I wasn't getting through. So she took over the prayer, he said, and she prayed, Lord, this is not the time to take my husband. You know he's not ready. He never prays, never goes to church. Don't take him now. 
she was really talking to God as she was praying. And what will I do about these kids of ours? I quit school to marry him. I don't have any skills. I can't get work. And what about these kids, God? They're already hard to handle. If you take him now, God, the kids will be as wild as bucks. This is not the time to take my husband. Craddock said he was quiet as she was praying so loudly and energetically. He said, I stayed as long as I felt useful, and then I left. He went back to the hospital the next morning to visit someone else, and there were that, was that woman again, her hair combed, looking nice, smiling as she stood outside the intensive care ward. He's doing much better, my husband, she said. He's going to make it. She said, I'm sorry about that crazy woman you had to deal with yesterday. Craddock said, you weren't crazy. And she said, I guess the Lord heard one of us. And Craddock said, ma'am, he heard you. She was desperate, Craddock says, in remembering that story. She had God by the lapels, both hands, and was screaming in God's face. And God heard her because she wouldn't give up. May we be blessed with that same courage before understanding, before feeling worthy, just to trust God's love enough to keep at it, be persistent, and never give up. Amen.